Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. Thank you for tuning in. If you've uh, just climbed in your car, you're heading home. All right, here's what you've missed so far. I had Rob Bluey on to get things started. He was great. And then Dr. Alex McFarlane was just on, and he was great too. And so the um, we continue now with uh, Jeff Verdorn, who's in my studio. We're going to uh, continue our study of who is this Jesus? Can you believe we're up to part 11 already? Hard to believe how fast that's gone. So, uh Jeff is a friend, Bible teacher, and a regular guest. You may hear him uh, on Tuesday, or you may recognize his voice from Guy Talk, and he's a regular on that show as well. Jeff, welcome. Good afternoon, Bill. Yeah. So uh, we are in part 11, and the study's been great, and now we're going to talk more about some parables, but we're going to start by anchoring today's talk in Matthew chapter 25. We are. So we are in this series We've been kind of covering everything about Jesus from beginning to end, or what I like to say, before the beginning and before the end, because clearly Jesus, who is God, is eternal with God in eternity past and, of course, in eternity future. Um, So uh, we turned a couple weeks ago to some of the teachings then of Jesus uh, during his earthly life. So these are kind of the words in red in your Bible in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And like a good teacher, I had categorized the teachings of Jesus into seven different categories. And just a quick review, we talked about one of the categories is Jesus talked about repent for the kingdom of God is near. He taught about following me, come, and I will make you fishers of men. The third category we talked about was that he is the I am. And there are seven I am statements in the book of John, for example, and he says that he is the I am. And of course, we looked at the divinity of Christ at the time, that God, of course, is the one who said, I am that I am. And so he is literally claiming to be God. Jesus also said, number four, that you must be born again. So we looked at all of the teachings in the Gospels of being born again and what that means, salvation, and being made, what Paul says later in in Corinthians, being made a new creation. And then we talked about the greatest commandment. Remember, Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, to love others. We talked about his teaching that says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days and all the kind of some of the prophecy tones associated with that. And then finally, we looked at the promised Holy Spirit. And so we kind of just covered some of the highlights in those seven categories. And then last time, we moved into some of the parables of Jesus because one of the things that we know is that Jesus loved to teach in parables. We covered some of the principles on how to look at parables, and we even asked the question of why does Jesus speak in parables in the first place. And then we looked at one of the main themes of all the parables, about 40 parables in the Bible. 33 of the 40 parables speak about salvation. And so last time we looked at some of the core parables of Jesus and how they relate to this main theme 
and that is salvation. But today, today, we're going to continue looking at parables, but I wanted to start and look at at a group of parables in Matthew that describe two ways, two paths, two destinies. And there's a series of parables, the parable of the weeds, good weeds, and bad weeds, the parable of the net, good fish, bad fish, the parable of the wedding banquet, some go in, some don't go in, the faithful and wise servants, the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents. They all have a common theme. There are two ways two destinies. There's a way that leads to salvation and there's a way that leads to condemnation. But in order to understand these group of parables properly, I believe that you need to understand what is called in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goat judgment. So that's what you mentioned earlier. And I thought we'd start by reading what is actually not a parable, the sheep and the goat judgment. I know many theologians say that the sheep and the goat judgment is a parable, but as we read it here today, we're going to see there's no parable language in this narrative. This starts with when the Son of Man comes. So I believe the sheep and the goat judgment is an actual event. It happens when Jesus returns at the second coming, and this is the first thing that he does. He's going to gather the nations, and we'll talk about who that is, and he's going to separate them. So I would you mind reading that for me, the Matthew 25, 31 to 46, the no, sheep and the goat judgment? I would be happy to. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So I think most of your listeners are probably familiar with this narrative in Matthew 25 and that this is the judgment that's called the sheep and the goat judgment. A few things to point out after you read it here. 
Notice there was no parable language like we mentioned. The Son of Man is going to come in his glory. That's the second coming. This is an actual event. He says he gathers the nations. Well, who are the nations? I believe the nations are the Gentile nations, the people who are left, uh, excluding Israel, because Jesus is going to deal with Israel separately when he comes at his second coming. And this, so this is the remaining nation, so the rest of the people of the world. And there's two types of people. There are sheep he put on his right, and there are goats that he puts on his left. Now, many look at this and say, boy, it sure sounds that the good are entering in to eternity or into the kingdom because of what they did, what you've done to the least of these. They fed him, they took care of him, and so on. And those who are bad, the goats on the left, they didn't do those things. So at first glance, it appears that you can be saved by what you do. But clearly, knowing the rest of the New Testament and many of Paul's words that it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. So we know with the rest of the revelation of the New Testament that we are not saved by works. So why does he describe the works of the sheep and the works of the goats and what's going on? Well, the question is, why are the sheep sheep and why are the goats goats? By the way, this is clearly symbolic language. This is a metaphor for the good and the bad. But notice what Jesus says in verse 37 and also again in verse 46. He says, then the righteous will answer him. Verse 46, but the righteous will go to eternal life. So the sheep are described as righteous. And we know the only way to obtain the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. So Mm -hmm. clearly sheep are are believers, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period so that when Jesus returns at the second coming, they are the saved. All right, they are righteous. And the goats then obviously are the unsaved. So you enter the kingdom of God not by what you do, but by belief, by faith. That's the only way. That's the only way. I like that. Yep. So he comes at a second coming. He gathers the nations. The good, the righteous, will enter into the kingdom, the millennial kingdom of Christ that he is just setting up right at that moment. The goats are going to go away to eternal punishment. All right. So there's the picture. That's an event that is actually going to happen. That's part of God's prophetic plan for the end of the age. Now we're going to turn to the parables that immediately precede this chapter, and it's a number of parables, and I rattled them off at the beginning of the show, and we're going to see that each one of these parables actually shows a separation of the good and the bad. The good are going to enter in, and the bad are going to be sent away, exactly like the sheep and the goats. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeff, you realize we could create tremendous suspense if we went to break right now. Oh, that would be a very uh, I'm not good timing. kidding. Uh, we come back and they're going to be, they can't <laughs> wait to hear what you're going to say. All right. So well, I think we go now. We come back with the parable of the weeds, which will be the first one we'll look at. Okay. Everybody who wants to break right now, raise their hand. Okay, Jeff, Rosie, Jacob. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with more of Jeff Verdorn as we study Who is This Jesus? Be right back.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. The way they keep on telling me time and time again, boy, you never win. You never win. But the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth. You can exhale. We're back. If you were holding your breath over the, the break, because we're going to now talk about the um, what we had promised. The suspense is is driving everybody nuts, Jeff. Parable of the weeds. Parable of the weeds. Okay. We're going we're gonna to talk about the good and the bad and all these parables that lead up to the sheep and the goats. And you think of the sheep, and there's over, I think, 400 references to us being sheep in the Bible. And, of course, sheep that make it have a shepherd. They do. We're they, sheep with the shepherd, We right? are sheep with the shepherd. And he knows who we are, and we hear his voice, and we we know exactly uh-huh. who our shepherd is. And then when cool. it comes to goats, I mean, we talk think about goats, and I mean, isn't even the head of the satanic movement a goat's head? It is. Yeah. I know. Not that I want to talk about that, because I don't, but... No, yeah, evil. This world is an evil place. Remember, yep. if you think the world is bad and evil is winning all around us, remember there's nothing new under the sun. It's kind of always been that way, so... Many of, of a prophet have lamented, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? So this has been going on for a long, long time. Yeah. Well, let's get to the good and the bad parables because um, I want to get to it. Yeah. So we're not going to read each of these parables. Uh, you can go back and read them yourself. I'm going to summarize them and the characters in these parables and what happens to them. And then we're going to compare them to the actual sheep and the goat judgment. So the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13 is a a a... There are good seeds, so we have the righteous, the good. We have the wicked or the bad, and that's the weeds in the parable. What happens to the good is that they are brought into the barn, into the kingdom of the Father. What happens to the wicked? Well, they are tied in bundles and burned where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we're going to hear that phrase over and over for what happens to the bad, where they are thrown, I believe, into Hades, into the torment side of Hades, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. So that's where the, if you recall from Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man went to the torment side of Hades and he lamented his fate, right? Mm -hmm. So he was, it doesn't say this in the passage in Luke 16, but he was weeping and gnashing his teeth. All right. And of course, the judge in the parable is the owner, the son of man, who is the one doing the harvesting. And clearly, Jesus is the one who is conducting the sheep and the goat judgment. When does this happen? At the harvest, at the end of the age, the parable says. So look, that parallels the sheep and the goat judgment exactly. So let's turn to the next one. The parable of the net. This is in Matthew 13 as well. And once again, we have the righteous or the good are the good fish. We have the bad fish. The good fish are brought into the basket and the bad fish are thrown away into the fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. Once again, this one's a little longer, a little more complicated, but we still have these core components. We have the good 
Note that these are the ones that are invited or enter into the wedding banquet. We have the bad. The good stay or come into the wedding banquet. The wicked, they are tied hand and foot and thrown out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the next one, the parable of the faithful and wise servants in Matthew 24. Once again, we have the same components. We have the good or the righteous. It's the faithful and wise servant. We have the wicked servant. This one is interesting because it does not explain the fate of the good and wise servant, but we can assume that it's good and he's is as favor with the master, who is obviously the son of man in this parable. The wicked are cut to pieces, assigned a place with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I believe that's a picture of Hades. Then there's the parable of the ten virgins. And in the parable of the ten virgins, this one's kind of common. We all know this. We have the five wise virgins and we have the five foolish virgins, right? So we have, once again, the good and the bad. Now, the good five virgins enter into the wedding banquet. But for the foolish, the door is shut and they are not allowed to enter. Who does the judging in this one? It's called, it's, he is the bridegroom, but clearly that too is a picture of Jesus. And this happens at midnight. And actually there are several references in scripture that describe Jesus coming back at his second coming at, guess what time? At midnight. And so once again, this parallels the sheep and the goat judgment exactly. Now on the virgins, I got to make one side note here. Because many people believe that this uh, event, the picture of the virgins, is a picture of the rapture of the church. And I don't think it is at its core. In fact, all of Matthew 24 and 25 is an answer to this question. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so it's about Jesus's second coming. The rapture really isn't in view in any of this narrative. Some people will say, well, see the five wise virgins, well, they had oil and the oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is if you read the parable closely, the five foolish virgins also have oil in their lamps. It's just that they ran out. Now, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I don't believe you can lose the Holy Spirit. So I don't think oil is representative of the Holy Spirit at all. I think that's one of the problems that we encounter sometime when understanding parables is you start mixing your metaphors and it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. The, the idea is, is that the five wise were prepared. They were ready to go in and the foolish ones were not. How are you prepared? The sheep and the goat judgment. The righteous, they had faith. They believed they were declared righteous and they will enter in the foolish do not. They weren't prepared. They never believed. And so they are not allowed into the wedding banquet. And by the way, the wedding banquet, I'll make this reference here as well. There is the first event in the new kingdom that Jesus will establish on earth is what? A giant wedding feast. And and I think it's Isaiah. It says a feast of the finest meats and the choicest wines. It is going to be a fabulous, wonderful feast, and the wise virgins will enter, the foolish will not. The sheep will, the goats do not. So once again, the parable of the ten virgins 
parallels the sheep and the goat judgment perfectly. Mm-hmm. Anything on decadent desserts in Scripture on that? Nothing? Uh, desserts, nothing yes. It doesn't use the word decadent, okay, though. Well, yeah, that's, all right. I don't think decadent right, shows right. up anywhere in Scripture. So, uh, so that's the ten virgins. So uh, it, one last word on the, on the rapture, because this is something that I've struggled with uh, for years and years, because it, it, in a sense, many of these events, the good and the bad— uh, the good are actually are raptured, of course, at the rapture of the church, which I, I believe precedes the tribulation period. So it would be seven years before these events. And and but I don't think I don't think it's in view specifically, but it it is kind of in view in this sense. The rapture, like the sheep and the goat judgment, is a separation, right? The good, the righteous yeah. are raptured up. Those who don't believe are left behind. In the same way, the sheep enter into the kingdom. And the goats go away where there's uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two different events, but they, they're they very similar in nature. So could this represent the rapture in some way? Yes, possibly. Uh, but I think the contents demand that it it, it be it's a parallel of this sheep and goat judgment at the end of Matthew 25. All right, next one. The parable of the talons. Another very long parable. Uh, Prophecy, or I'm sorry, parable, parable, sorry, in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And in this parable, we see that there is a good and faithful servant, and he is allowed to come and share in the master's happiness. We see that there is a wicked and lazy servant, and he is thrown outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who's the judge? The master. What's the time reference? When the master returns after a long time. Once again, the core components of this parable of the talents matches the, the future event of the sheep and the goat judgment perfectly. One note on this one, which is very interesting, and you might get some emails on this one, Bill, because in this parable, this is where we get the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, the well done, my good and faithful servant in this parable is being spoken to the good and the faithful servant. Well, if they truly are representative of the sheep, of the sheep and the goat judgment, who are the ones that are going to hear the phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant? And that is the sheep at the sheep and the goat judgment. I would like to point out that we, the church, are going to be raptured up before the tribulation period, and we will be coming down with Christ. The armies of heaven were following him, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. We will be in our glorified bodies. We will already be resurrected to glory. And so are we going to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant? And I would argue, no, the sheep will hear those words. And yet we hear this all the time. You know, I remember famous pastors. I mean, I want to hear on that day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. All right. When we come back, we'll probably touch on this some more. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. Who is this Jesus is our topic. We'll be right back. Show with Bill Arno, drive time, drive time, the 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Jeff Verdorn is my guest in studio with his driver, Jacob, who happens <laughs> to be his oldest son. So um, if you want to learn more about Jesus, you can text faith to 41224. You can just text the word faith to 41224. You can learn more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or chat with someone about it. But you'll hear about it here mm. five days a week. In addition, Maybe we should explain why I have a driver. It's not like I have a driver all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you never have Everywhere a driver. I go. You love to drive. Yeah, I yeah. had an eye surgery a few weeks ago, and I'm still recovering, so uh, that's why I have a driver. It's hard to drive at night uh, as I'm recovering. So. Yes, yeah. so thank you for saying that. Yeah. And Jacob, welcome back. It's not, yeah, valet. Valet, Where's please. my valet? Yes, yes. Go get the car, Jacob. Yes. <laughs> so. All right. Well, we, were, we wrapped up the different parables that are parallel of the sheep and the goat judgment. And we ended the last half hour with this idea that uh, the, in this last parable that we saw, in the parable of the, of the talons, that the sheep are the ones that will hear the words, the phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so the sheep are the ones who enter into the kingdom. That's in the context of Matthew 25, though, correct? Correct. Now, doesn't that well done, good and faithful servant also appear somewhere else in Scripture? I don't think the phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant, okay. appears anywhere except for the parable of the talent, okay. which parallels the sheep and the goat judgment of Matthew 25, right? Okay. So that's why I believe it's the sheep that will hear those words, not all of our, all of us as believers in Christ today, who are going to be raptured up and glorified before then. We'll return with Jesus, mm-hmm. and then the ones who have endured this seven-year tribulation, at the conclusion of that, at the... The, th- the white throne of judgment. Well, will, at the second coming the second of Christ. Coming, that's what I meant. Yep. Uh, they will separate it and say, well done. And then they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And enter into the millennial kingdom. Yes. yes. Okay. It's, you know, it's one of these things that do you really want to hear? It, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this up. We'll finish this thought. Watch this. Do you really want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? And the answer is, is that our inheritance is so much more than just a good pat on the back and well done. Right? It's so, we are in Christ. We are the righteousness of Christ. And I compare it to the actual wedding banquet itself. There is a couple passages in Scripture that leads the reader with this understanding that the good are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a couple passages. In fact, Revelation 19 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It comes up in the gospel someplace too. And people say, Well, I want to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, guess what? Is the bride invited to her own marriage supper? And the answer is no. We, as the bride, are the guest of honor. It's the sheep, the ones who are going to enter the millennial kingdom because of their righteousness during the tribulation. They are the ones that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We, as the church, are the guest of honor. We're the bride of Christ. You see how our inheritance is so much more than a simple well done. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, I want to I want to be sensitive to everyone who have, have used that at a funeral because there is those are wonderful words if somebody spent their life serving Christ. Well, just say well done. It it is. And and when you get to heaven, we are rewarded 
for the works that we've done in our body, right? The Bema judgment, mm-hmm. the judgment seat of Christ, is the reward that is described in Scripture where we will be rewarded for what we've done in the body. So as we have borne fruit for God through his power, working in and through us, Christ himself will reward us at the Bema seat, mm-hmm. which is not the sheep and the goat judgment. This is the believer's judgment after the rapture of the church. I believe it occurs in heaven. It's a spiritual judgment of believers, and we will be rewarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in a sense, because we're rewarded, there is a certain um, a certain well done, I guess, in that. Uh, I'm just pointing out that the specific phrase that's used from the parable of the talents, which is applied to believers, I believe applies to the sheep. And, our, and, and I would just argue our inheritance is much more than that. Mm, I, I would agree. All right. All right. So where do we go? So that's the sheep and the goat judgment. So we wrapped up that. Um, that is a handful of parables that precede the sheep and the goat and all, um, I think, are representative of that event that's going to happen at the second coming. There are other parables uh, that also describe um, two different ways, right? In in the last group, we've had the sheep and the goats, the the wheat and the tares, and the the wise and the foolish, and so on. There's actually a number of different parables that do that as well. One is the watchful servants of Luke 12, and it starts this way. It says, "Be dressed ready for service and keeping your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet." And it's like when I was studying these, I thought for a minute, it's like. From the wedding banquet, wait a minute, because I thought this also kind of paralleled the sheep and the goat judgment, but he's returning from the wedding banquet. So in the English, in the translation that I was reading, wedding banquet is how they translated that. And it suddenly threw me kind of into a tizzy. Well, how can they be returning from the wedding banquet if after the sheep and the goat judgment, we're going to be entering into the wedding banquet? Well, guess what? A couple hours later, doing a little Greek word study and so on, the word that is translated wedding banquet is actually, should be translated, I believe, as just wedding and not wedding banquet. So the so the groom is returning from the wedding. Ah, now we have the good and the bad. Jesus returning from the wedding, entering into the wedding banquet, just like all the other parables that we were talking about. So once again, in the parable of the watchful servant, we basically have two groups, those that are ready and those that are not, just like the sheep and the goats. All makes sense, doesn't it? It does. I mean, you know, there have been those who have tried to claim over the years uh, with different books and teachings and stuff that in some way, shape, or form, all people will end up in heaven. And you do not have to get that far into your study of Scripture to realize, no, there are two distinct destinies described in Scripture again and again and again. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have a life, does not have life. It's the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goat, the wide road and the narrow road. Oh, that's where we're going to go next, the wide and the narrow road. So Matthew 7 says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So once again, here's a clear picture of two destinies of mankind. Either you go through the small gate and the narrow road that leads to life, 
or you go through the wide gate that leads to destruction. We are currently on the path, though. If you are a saved person, you will be entering through the narrow gate. Oh, correct. That's exactly where I'm going with oh, this. Oh, good. Okay, good. Yeah. So this is a choice that is made that you, every single person has to make. Are you going to be saved and on the narrow path, or are you going to be lost and remain on the wide road to destruction? So clearly the narrow road is an image. By the way, this is not a parable specifically. It's often listed as a parable. So this is a metaphor. There's some metaphorical language being used here, but it's not really a parable. It's not a story, if you will. Um, So the narrow road represents believers. They are saved. Those on the broad road do not believe. They stand condemned. So why is the gate small and the road narrow? I believe not because it's hard, but it's because it's the only way. I think one of the great big lives of the world is that all roads lead to God. Yeah. And the answer is no. There's only one road that leads to eternal life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. Acts 4, 12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to get to God, you have to go through Jesus Christ. He's the one mediator. That's why Jesus said in John 10, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So the narrow road is not hard. It's not difficult. It's not hard to find. It's just that it's exclusive. And and we can talk about the few versus the many. I don't know what the what percentage of the earth is truly saved, is truly born again. I don't even know what that percentage is in the United States. I mean, I've seen lots of different varying uh, estimates from polls and stuff of self people who are self-described born again. I think the best estimates from some of the better polls that I've seen over the years is probably about 25 to 33 percent of Americans are truly born again. Others have it as low as 15%, but I don't think it's that low. I kind of like the 25. I'm hopeful. I'm that hopeful too. Third. That seems like a big number. Right. But you go around the world and it's, you know, it's significantly less, less than that because we have competing, very strong competing world religious systems around the world. Um, and then finally, to your point, many teach this passage from Matthew 7 as that as a Christian, you better stay on that narrow road. You better stay on the straight and narrow because if you wander away from God's ways, you're going to end up on the broad path that leads to destruction. And your comment at the start of this is exactly right. Once you are saved, you have gone through the narrow gate. You are on the narrow road. And when you're not saved, you are on the other road. And I believe that once you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. All crea- uh, God says he holds you in his hands. Nothing in creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's given you the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. He said he gave you the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit would be with you for how long? Forever. You cannot lose your salvation. So once you're born again, you're on that narrow road. Mm-hmm. Done. Done deal. I was talking to a friend over the weekend, we were bringing up this subject of eternal security, and the discussion went in this direction where there are people 
very educated scholars who would say, no, you can lose your salvation. Just in opposition to what you just said, Jeff. Mm -hmm. And I raised the point when in the Garden of Eden, Satan says, is that really what God said? Mm. And I wonder if that's not something that is spiritual warfare when that idea is floating around in the heads of people who are saved and born again and who have received the Holy Spirit as an inheritance guaranteeing, um, as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You know, and there's actually a number of verses that describe our salvation as being guaranteed. Uh, There's also many passages that say our salvation is kept in heaven for us, shielded by God's power. In other words, it's him, it's God is the one who keeps us in his hand. He's the one that keeps us saved. It's not based on us. As a good friend of mine always says, if I could lose my salvation, I would lose it every day. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness it's not up to me. It's up to God. He's the one who keeps it. But this is a very important theological issue, and I know it's been debated over the years. I debated this issue 30 years ago, and I set out on a on a course of prayer and trying to understand this. And today, or years later, after that time, I developed a, a, a about a 20-page, 30-page list of all the passages in Scripture that described that once a person is saved, they are born again. And if you think about this, the moment you're born again, if you could lose your salvation, then you'd have to be unborn again. Does that idea show up anywhere in Scripture of a person being unborn again? No, it's it's foreign. It says that you have been forgiven, washed clean. Um, there's no passage that says, well, God would have to unforgive you to be unsaved. You've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you've been raised to life in that resurrection power of Christ— God would have to crucify your, his new created new self and resurrect your old crucified self. That concept doesn't appear in Scripture anywhere either. Um, so, look, we, we have done, actually, I could say we could do a whole show, but we've done a whole show <laughs> yeah. on this idea that once you're born again, you have true assurance of salvation. And to me, I mean, I get passionate about assurance because to me it's one of the most important understandings doctrinally you know, after salvation that you can have as a Christian. All right. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We'll take a little break and we'll come back. We were talking about our series, Who Is This Jesus? And I'm enjoying this tremendously. Be right back. so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. I'm always glad for a short break. It gives me a chance to gather some of my thoughts. I bet you have some too. And if you have one or two, you want to get them over to me. We don't have a lot of time left, but we're going to continue with uh, Jeff Verdorn and some of these amazing parables, 877-933-2484. Jeff, when you talked about the narrow road and the broad road, when you're on the narrow road, you've already gone through the gate. 
because you just said to me that the gate is at the beginning of the road. Hmm. Well, yeah, it appears in the passage, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. So I believe the picture is, is as a believer in Christ Jesus, you have entered through the narrow gate and you are on that narrow road that leads to life. You have eternal life. Awesome. Cool. That's really cool. In the same way, the next one, and, and this is a parable in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, is the wise and the foolish builders. And everybody's familiar with this. Everyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rains come down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. Who's the rock, by the way, often in Scripture? Peter? Uh, Christ. Oh, Christ, of Christ. course. Yeah. Close. Um, the, <laughs> verse 26. I should have prepped for that no, one. No, no. I so, mean, I always. Christ is always the answer. Christ, Jesus yeah, that, is always the answer. <laughs> and I thought you were playing a trick question on me, so I gave the trick answer. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah it's it's... That's an old joke, right? What's the answer in Christian in high school? It's like Jesus is always the answer. It's right? always, he's always yeah, the answer, yeah. So I thought it was a trick question. 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, the traditional interpretation, or the common interpretation of this is primarily that you need to live as a Christian by God's word, otherwise your house is going to come tumbling down when the storms come. So Christian, build your house on the rock because when the storm comes, you don't want to have your house blown down. I actually believe that that is kind of a secondary interpretation because the primary interpretation, I believe, is like the gate and the narrow road. If you have built your house On the firm rock, who is Christ, your house will stand. Your house will never get knocked down. Mm -hmm. That's assurance of salvation. So I actually see the primary understanding of this is just like the wide and the narrow gate, which actually just came right before this, that if you are in Christ, if you believe you have put God's word into practice, you believed his testimony, you have been made righteous, you have been born again, and your house is now on a rock and it will never get knocked down. Your salvation is secure. And if you're not saved, your house will be knocked down. Remember, John 3 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Your house will be condemned. The work of God is this, Jesus says in John chapter 6, to believe in the one he has sent. And this is his command, 1 John 3, to believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The wise man is saved. He has built his house upon rock, the rock who is Christ. The foolish man is unsaved. His house will fall. He will be condemned. I want to read Dwight Pentecost here on the parables of Jesus. He wrote a book a while ago. and I, I have that book. Do you? The yeah. parables of Jesus? I do. Yeah, it's a good book. He said this, Out of this instruction arose a question. 
Why is it important to make a decision concerning the words of Christ, and what is the danger of rejecting them? In order to answer this question, Christ pictured his hearers as builders. Everyone who heard his word was responsible for those words. The truth that Christ presented was a foundation not only for life in this age, but in the coming age. The permanence of any building depends on its foundation— and the building that every person builds will be subjected to this test. If you're saved, your house will stand. If you're not saved, your house will fall. There's your two roads, your two gates, the wheat and the tares, the wise and the foolish, the sheep and the goats. You cannot hardly open up the scripture to see that there are two destinies, one for those who believe and are saved and one for those who are lost and condemned before God. Pretty clear. And I think that, like we said at the beginning, one of the great themes of Scripture, I'm sorry, one of the great, well, Scripture, too, is salvation. I mean, that's really the heart of the message of redemption through all of Scripture. And so it's no surprise that 33 out of 40 of the parables also deal with this topic of salvation. That's why Jesus came. I came to seek and save that which is lost And so that's what he mostly taught was salvation. Now, real quick, there are some other parables about salvation as well. I think kind of indirectly about salvation is the rich fool in uh, Luke 12, the cost of discipleship in Luke 14, and the shrewd manager in Luke 16. But really, it's it's kind of indirectly about salvation, and I I don't think we, we don't have time to really go through those. Um, there's also a couple parables that talk about the kingdom of heaven and that it is advancing. The kingdom is advancing on earth. Remember, we talked about this a couple sessions ago, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven has not yet come to earth. It's advancing on earth because more and more people are believing and becoming members of the kingdom of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But never forget, our citizenship is one that is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. We in this world today are foreigners and aliens. We are ambassadors from a foreign land in this world here today. And there's a couple of parables that talk about the fact that this kingdom of heaven is advancing on earth. That's the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of yeast in Matthew, both in Matthew 13. And At one point in time, and this is at the second coming of Christ, the whole earth will finally be filled with his glory, as the Old Testament says, and it will fill. And then all, as Ezekiel 37 says, and then the nations will know that I am the Lord. And that, I believe, is the second coming when when the yeast will finally work through the whole batch of dough and the whole earth will know that he is the Lord. And then one other... uh, parable that um, I also believe is is often mistaken, I think, is the persistent widow. Um, it's often taught that this is a lesson that we need to be persistent in prayer. Uh, if you read the parable, it doesn't sound like a, a believer. They're kind of complaining a lot, and it's like, that's how we're supposed to come before God in prayer? I actually think that's a picture of Israel's future salvation. That is in Luke 18. Um, so, and but we don't really have time to go over that uh, today either. So um, I think next time we will jump into the parable of the sower 
because this is a real deep parable, and we only got about a minute and a half left or so, two minutes, and I, I don't think we can get into it and give it any justice. So uh, I think we'll pick that up uh, next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last word on the some of the other parables as it relates to salvation, whatever, and just some things that are actually not parables that I will, I'll cover now, and that is uh, your lamp. The, don't hide your lamp under a bowl. Uh, that's actually not a parable, but just a, a metaphor. We talked about the two roads. The parable of the fig tree is also really not a parable. It's just kind of a, an extended metaphor. And the vine and the branches is another one that is often listed under parables in John 15. And and really, it's just it uses the symbolic language or the metaphorical language of the vine and the branches, but it's really not a parable. There's no story there. There's not a parable story there. And then two other that are often listed as parables as well. The sheep and the goat judgment, which we spent a good amount of time on today, it often listed as a parable. And it's just, it's not a parable. It's it's an actual event that's coming upon the earth. And then the rich man and Lazarus that I actually mentioned briefly here today as well in Luke 16, again, not a parable, but an actual event. Mm-hmm. There is no parable anywhere where it names the person. And this one, there's no start of this of in Luke 16 that says, you know, there was once a rich man and another man named right. Lazarus. It, it's There was a rich man and Lazarus, a real person, and I believe it was a real actual event. Jeff, thanks again. It's really great to have you on the program, and I will see you Thursday for Guy Talk. Yes, Is indeed. that correct? Good yeah. deal. Good deal. And that wraps up our show for the day. I've loved being with you, and I hope you have enjoyed the program today. If you missed any of it, I will repeat myself often, but say do go to the podcast. You can... Find that at MyFaithRadio.com in the Afternoons with Bill show page. So thank you. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, know that God is working on his great plan in your life, and he loves you. I do too. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.